Our Father God, we do stand in Christ, in this place at this time, by your grace and your spirit. And we rejoice in it. We humbly yet boldly ask that you would continue to be gracious to us that you would continue to pour out his spirit upon us, that you would open our eyes to see him, open our ears to hear him, that we might be transformed by him and into him for the glory of his name. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it seems appropriate, but uh, during this epiphany season, I had an epiphany this week. It was a small epiphany, uh, but it was one of those aha kind of moments. Um, small, but really quite lovely, as far as I can see. I just... Um, uh, it was a, uh, a busy, busy week <clears throat> uh, for us here, and for me in particular, a good week, a hugely happy good week, but uh, a very busy one. So I found myself with much less time for sermon prep than I normally have. Uh, I hope you don't pay the price today, but I don't think you will. Um, anyways, I began where I always begin. Every, t- every week I begin, I begin with the Old Testament text set for the day, and then I work my way through to the gospel. Uh, and so I did that. Uh, I started with this text from Isaiah 42, uh, and then had an epiphany. Uh, it was something I thought I already knew. One of those things, right? something I should have known, but it seems that the penny dropped deeper, if you know what I mean. That there was something profound that sort of just came up from the ground of this particular text. And it occurred to me, and it dawned to me, fairly simply, how utterly foundational these texts from Isaiah were for those first gospel writers. Utterly foundational. Now remember, uh, the only scriptures they had were the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They were about to write the New Testament, but they had not yet done so. The only scriptures they had were these texts given to Israel. And out of that corpus of the Old Testament, these texts from the later chapters of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, and especially chapters 40 through 55, came alive for them. And indeed formed the shape of the gospel that they would tell. Formed the shape of the gospel that they would write. And you can see it in the words of these texts. Remember, they began with Isaiah 40 and framed and introduced the Baptist ministry, John the Baptist ministry, by quoting that text. 
Behold, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then they introduce, uh, all of them, but especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, introduce the ministry of Jesus by quoting from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, the one I pour my spirit upon, the one with whom my soul delights. These two texts form the context of the beginning of the gospel that they were telling and they would eventually write. And it just dawned on me again how foundational these things are for our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So this week I found myself starting with Isaiah 42 and I never left it. <clears throat> In fact, I found myself saying and reminding myself that this is only the first of four what they called servant psalms from Isaiah 40 through 55. <clears throat> and I found myself drawn to read all four of the psalms uh, flowing out of this first one. And I began to see that this truly, these four psalms, shape the gospel. They shape the way those first evangelists told the gospel. And I'm convinced that they did so because for Jesus himself, they shaped his vocation. And so all I want to do today is very quickly walk with you through these four psalms in these glorious chapters and see what God has to say to us very quickly. We can't go into detail. So you might want to open up your Bibles. We're going to be speeding through these things. How is his vocation shaped by these things? Start with Isaiah 40, because that again is where the gospels start. Mark especially, and we believe he is the first of the writers. And so he begins with this text, Isaiah 40. Um, because God had promised in this beginning of this chapter uh, that he was about to do a new thing, right? And so this voice would appear, he says, it would come out in the wilderness and say, prepare the way of the Lord. God himself makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's the new thing. The prophet says that God himself would say, look, I will return to Zion. I will return to my people in Jerusalem. Remember again that the glory of God had deserted the temple at the beginning of the exile. And now the people were yearning for the return of God to the temple. And the promise of the prophet here in Isaiah 40 is he will come. He will return. The Lord himself, the creator of all, will come and intervene in his creation for his people. And it will be a glorious thing. That's the ministry of John. That's what he proclaims. That this apocalyptic intervention by the creator himself has indeed begun with the advent of John the Baptist. That's big news for the entire cosmos. But the question is, how is this God to return? In what form will this God return? Where is the glory to be seen? 
And that's where we come to the first of the servant psalms, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And here's how the Lord himself addresses the people through the prophet. He says, behold my servant. This is the way I return. This is how I come back in all my glory to my people, to my temple. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon now imagine those first disciples reflecting after the resurrection of Jesus, reflecting on his baptism itself. Would not these words just jump off the page? Of course, this is he. Of course, this is what happened at his baptism. The father himself adapts that same message when he says, uh, behold, my son, you are my son, my beloved one. With you I am well pleased. The affirmation of the Father at the baptism of Jesus is the same affirmation of Lord Almighty to the servant in Isaiah 42. And the disciples heard that and went, bingo. Behold the one who has come, the Lord himself returning to his people. But Isaiah goes beyond what the baptism says. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, why? And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There's his vocation. That's what he's coming to do. Now, when you and I hear the word justice, we think in terms of law, uh, and if somehow he's coming to sort of make sure the law is enforced in some way or other. There's an aspect of that in this, but it's more than that. When the Hebrew scriptures speak about God bringing justice or God being righteous, what he's, they're saying is that God has this absolute will to make things right. To come into his creation and undo the damage done so that his will for it might be fulfilled. There is justice for all, all who are made in his image plus all who are living within his creation. He has come to set things right. That's his vocation. And the one that God says, my son will come. I will designate him as my servant. I will place my spirit upon him so that he might make my creation right. There it is. That's the vocation that starts. And that's what the gospel writers heard when they heard and reflected on the baptism. This is the one who has come to do exactly this. Well, the question comes then, how will he set things right? And we move on to the second of the servant psalms, Isaiah 49, 
beginning again in the first verse. And interesting enough, the servant now addresses the nations, not his people, but the nations. You and I are included in this address. And it says this. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. What a glorious thought. He goes on, and listen to this. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. It's a fascinating statement. So the servant addressing the nations says, I have been sent by my God as a warrior. My mouth is God's sword. I myself am God's polished arrow. I have come as a warrior to defeat the enemies of the creator himself. But notice, it's not the nations who are his enemies. He has come for them, even those who are oppressing his people. That's the shock. In fact, he goes on out of his way to say, no, it's exactly what I'm coming to do. He says this again to the nations. The Lord said to me, it is too light a thing, verse 6, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No. He says, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The servant comes as a warrior, but it's not against the nations that he comes. Now, the enemy is hidden in the prophecy of Isaiah, but is very quickly revealed in the story of Jesus. Remember what happens right after the baptism. We, were, we read in all four of the Gospels that the Spirit drove Jesus where? Out into the wilderness to confront the enemy. Now we usually say to be tempted by the enemy, and that is true, that's what happens in the wilderness. But in and through that temptation and the overcoming of the tempter, he defeats him. He overcomes him. Luke says he binds the strong man so that he might plunder his kingdom. That's what happens in the, in, in the temptations. We'll come to that on the first Sunday of Lent. But you understand how the evangelist heard this text. said, yes, he has come as a warrior, as God's polished arrow. He has come with his mouth being the sword of God himself. And he has come to destroy the works of the enemy. And from the beginning of his ministry right to the end, that's what Jesus did. 
he attracted the demonic to himself and he rebuked them by his word, overcoming them. The very first story we are here after the temptation uh, and following the call of the first disciples is him in Capernaum and he's confronting the man possessed by the demons who says, I know who you are, you are the Holy One. Have you come to destroy us? And in essence, he says, yeah, exactly. I am the warrior coming to defeat the true enemies of my people and of my creation. This is what he's come to do. He's the polished arrow. He is with his voice, his word. He speaks and defeats and overcomes that which opposes the will of his father. We see that. We rejoice in that as he walks through his own ministry. It's delightful. The question then comes how that he comes now to set things right and he becomes by overcoming and ultimately destroying the evil one, but how does he help us in that work? How are we to be reclaimed and how are we to be renewed by this one uh, for his new creation, knowing who we are and knowing how we are. And that's where we come to the final two servant psalms, beginning with Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 4, the servant speaks to his people now about his own relationship with his father, with his God. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord God... <laughs> has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are What a glorious thing. This servant says, I am here and my duty first and foremost is simply to listen to my father. To hear what he will say to me and then as I hear what he says to me, guess what? I share it with you. My father speaks to me, the son, and the son speaks the words of the father to those who will listen. And here is the foundation of the teaching ministry of Jesus. That he not only establishes the kingdom, but is alone able to teach us how to live within it. And he gloriously does. He sustains with a word those who are weary. Hallelujah. And he says, I choose to do that regardless of the circumstances. He goes on to say, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint 
and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Again, you can understand how the evangelist would listen to this flow of these psalms and then look at the life that they had just witnessed. And they see it being lived out before their very eyes. The one who overcomes the enemy is the one who now turns to address those and teach those how to live in his kingdom. And one who is opposed at every step on the way, increasingly so, by those who should have known better. But he does not turn back. He is not rebellious. He gives himself to those who oppose him, understanding that his father will indeed vindicate him. Wow. There it is. And he ends with a question, though. Notice in verse 10. The servant turns to those in the midst of his own rejection and says, Look, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? We too are caught up in the opposition. We too are a part of that opposition. And the challenge of the teacher is, will you really listen? Do you truly fear the one who made you? Do you truly recognize that I am the one he is sent to teach you. Will you indeed listen to me? See, the servant is the new thing. The servant is the one who has come from God to set his creation right, to establish his kingdom, to give birth to his new creation. And he comes to teach us, but he asks us, will you be taught? Will you listen? And we might find ourselves saying, well, how can we? Knowing who we are, knowing what we are, knowing where we are. Complicit with and corrupted by evil itself. So we come to the final and greatest of the sermon psalms, Isaiah 52 and 53. Well known to us every Good Friday. And note again, 52 verse 13, where it begins. It begins with a note, a shout of triumph. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And we go, all right, the, pros the procession is beginning. The time of glory is at hand until we begin to realize it means lifting up on the cross. But there it is. And then Isaiah 53 goes on to speak about this unspeakable thing, that the exaltation of this servant happens in this most scandalous of ways. And it's all according to the will of his father. Remarkable. He goes on, verse 3, he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Again, think of the disciples 
after the cross, fleeing into the unknown. We esteemed him not. We expected something differently. But then they come to this realization after the, the resurrection. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There's the glory. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is his vocation at its most glorious and scandalous. And why has God done all of this? Well, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We go, whoa. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then notice this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. We go, how does that happen? When he offers himself to death, he shall see those to whom he gives life. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And there is the irony of the gospel, the paradox of the gospel. It was a will of God to crush him because it was a will of God to prosper him. And both those things happen through the faithful enduring the cross. The Father and the Son together with the Spirit involved in all of this breaks the power of sin and cleanses the sinner at the same time. That's what happens in the cross. Now, the good news is we don't have to understand how it happens. I don't think anybody really does. You don't have to understand how it happens. You just have to know in your soul that it has. That by the grace of God and the mystery of salvation, that somehow through this death, life comes and life in all of its abundance, that this is the intervention of the creator in and for his creation through this servant, the one who lived this life, the one who did all these things and who offered himself on our behalf and in our place on this cross. In the mystery of salvation, grace and life flow from this death. He sees his offspring. He prolongs his day and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That's the gospel. So there's the frame. Those are the four songs of Isaiah. 
This one who comes, he's come to set things right, to bring the old to its end, to bring birth to the new. He does so by being God's arrow and God's sword to defeat our true enemy. He has come as God's wisdom and as God's king to teach us how to live within his kingdom. And he has come to make it all possible through the sacrifice of himself, which breaks the power of sin while cleansing the sinner and bringing us into his kingdom as part of his new creation. Isaiah says this is the promise. The gospel writer says this is the reality. Luke says, when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Will you and I receive the Father's testimony? That's what it is. Will you and I listen to the voice of his servant? Will you and I come to life through his death? Will you and I henceforth live our lives for him and with him? Those are the questions left by the four Psalms of Isaiah. Let us pray.